Uh, happy you have a Bible, and you'll turn with us to Matthew 13 today. Uh, we are continuing to look at this uh, maybe most famous parable that Jesus ever taught. Um, I grew up hearing this chapter preached, and usually it was preached um, as a four-point sermon because there's four points in the parable. But crazy me thought, hey, let's take that four points and let's make it four sermons. How about that? Um, but I believe, I believe that there is so much truth in this chapter and in this parable um, and breaking these scenarios and environments and these pathways down into four conversations is really going to benefit us. As we learned last week, we're just, on, we're just at the beginning um, at uh, learning how to follow Jesus more closely. So we are indeed in week two of this uh, conversation. This series called Jesus Follower. Um, if you're wondering what Jesus Follower means, uh, we'll get into more of that today, but uh, it refers to following Jesus, right? Simple enough. Uh, Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago, and the one thing that everyone can agree on, whether you believe he's anything special or not, um, historians agree on this, secular history uh, chronicles this, that he was a rabbi uh, that showed up, um, and from what we have in the Bible, he walked around a lot. So history tells us, the Bible tells us that Jesus was a traveling rabbi, which was common in his day. Rabbis would travel and would build crowds, would build followings. He traveled around and he built a movement. And based on history, again, he wasn't just adding to what the Jewish rabbis or prophets before him said. He uh, clearly was interpreting and attempting to replace many, if not most, of the pillars of the Jewish faith with his own words which, as you would imagine, made him a little bit controversial in his circles. Uh, whether he intended to cause a stir or a break away from Judaism completely is up to, in the air. But one thing's for sure, his ministry caused so much of a stir um, that the Jewish and Roman authorities were so afraid of him and the movement he was building and the threat he posed to both of them that he was deemed too dangerous to be left alive, a threat to their status quo, and they crucified him. They crucified him. History remembers Jesus as this radical rabbi who went rogue and was put to death. Yet, even from a mere historical and academic vantage point, though he was put to death, history suggests that Jesus was not a failed revolutionary at all. Even detached from the supernatural, Jesus was clearly successful in building a movement and galvanizing his disciples because to this day, his movement and his teachings remain which is pretty incredible, right? His movement hasn't just remained in the background, but actually has been at the forefront and has grown and grown and grown to the billions strong it is today. That's pretty incredible, I think. Even if we were here for a very, even if we are here for a very specific reason, and a very specific reason for which Jesus came and lived, which we'll arrive at later, I mean, here we are, fulfilling what Jesus set out to do all those years ago. He built a following indeed. Jesus framed his movement around this idea of following so much that he often told parables and preached sermons that were about pathways, all about hearing and responding, teaching and doing, and going in a certain direction. One of his most famous, the most famous parable that he ever taught is Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. Uh, we discovered last time, however, that it's much more about a farmer planting and sowing seeds. It's literally about uh, and depicts life's many various and diverse scenarios and pathways that we often find ourselves on. So I want you to read with me once again, Matthew 13, verses 1 through 9. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in the parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, 
And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of the earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. And some fell among thorns, and thorns sprang up and choked them, and others, or but others, fell on or into good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has an ear has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I just want to say this. Maybe you've thought this before. I used to hear this parable taught a lot as a kid and think, well, the farmer had to know. There was only one of these scenarios where the seed was ever going to have a chance at blooming, right? There was only one uh, scenario because there was only one garden in the story. There's pathways. And who throw, no one goes out and just throws seed, right, and just sees where it goes, right? And I think this parable is supposed to be extreme and supposed to get our attention in that way. But in this parable, there are three pathways. There's a sidewalk. There's a gravel road. There's a briar patch. And then there's a garden. And of course, which do you think is going to be the most fertile ground? Now, in short, this is a portrayal of how God is seeking to apply His truth, His Word, to your life along life's various pathways and foundations. And in this parable, we see how in those various settings, how we are likely to respond to what God is trying to say to us. And the importance is, if we don't first receive what God is saying to us before we endeavor on these various pathways, we will not be prepared for what is in store. I think that's pretty easy, easy to, to, to arrive at. Now, one of these, only one of these settings is ideal because it's controlled and it's static, right? That's pretty common sense. Three of them are excruciating, less than ideal environments. They're dynamic and they're in motion. And it's along these pathways that we spend most of our lives, right? And what we learned last time was that I don't think Jesus is saying that only one-fourth of people that, hear, that, that the Word is sent to respond. I don't think he's saying that unless you're in a controlled, perfect environment that you won't be able to receive Jesus or you won't be able to follow Jesus. I think he's making a very specific point. I think, and I think he's saying that unless we have ears to hear when we're under God's Word, when the ball's in our court, in those quiet times beginning at every day, before the day begins, before the week begins, as the day winds down, we will not be ready for what He has planned for us and where life will no doubt take us down any of these possible paths. And here's what we decided on. Life is too unpredictable and too uncertain to begin any day or end any day without allowing ourselves to come under God's voice and God's word. Life is too fragile and too eclectic to begin a week anywhere but in God's house with God's people. Life is too noisy and too dizzying to plug ourselves into any other source than that which lifts up Jesus and tunes our hearts to see him and glorify him and worship him. We know all this is true, but the world doesn't, and that's why it's so important that there are grounded, centered, squared away Christians showing the world, modeling to the world, exemplifying that there is a hope and that we can follow God's, world, God's word in our world. Now, God takes us down these three paths in, into these scenes so that we might show those that have not found faith that they can find security, they can find stability, they can find salvation. No matter what's distracting you or challenging you or threatening you or what's discouraging you or overwhelming you, you can turn to Jesus because Jesus is coming towards you and will be alongside of you. So today we continue to pray that God would give us ears to hear ears to hear so that we can receive God's word and be prepared for our world. I hope that we can at least be on the same page around that ideal, right? It's my prayer 
that by the time we're finished with this study, that we might learn to possess an understanding, an enduring, and a trusting spirit. We're going to need all three if we're going to make it through this life. Now, we've already figured out how to obtain an understanding spirit. Remember the birds from last week? We're not going to go down that horrific path again. But just be warned, they're still out there. We figured out how to avoid being distracted and allowing the enemy to snatch away our faith by devoting ourselves and submitting ourselves and standing under God's teaching every day. If we stand under God's word, then we will understand what he is doing and we will not be distracted by the enemy's lies and traps. Easier said than done, but we can follow the Lord and we can achieve that if we uh, humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Remember, today we're going to move from an easy everyday pathway where there are distractions on every corner, uh, albeit it's still an easier road. We're going to move to a more rough and difficult, less frequented pathway, but one that no doubt we all find ourselves on maybe more often than we would like to. And that is the rocky road or the gravel road or the dirt road. We all grew up calling them different things, right? I call them gravel roads. Someone else might call them dirt roads. You might call them just a, a dusty um, uh, you know, place that you don't want to go. But we all know what we're talking about here, right? A dirt, a gravel, a road that is bumpy, a road that is not ideal, a road that even terrain tires don't even have the easiest time on, right? These may be the roads that you think you've graduated from. Now, maybe did anybody grow up on a dirt road? Maybe you still live on a dirt road. I do. Um, uh, I'm not far from the p- pavement, but still. Um, maybe you grew up on a dirt road, right? And maybe you thought if I could just, I, you know, you got a new car, clean your car, and the second you drive down it, right, it's just like, why did I even wash it, right? If you grew up on a dirt road, if you live on a dirt road, we, you know, I can sympathize with you because I'm there. But maybe you, in the past, you lived in that sort of environment and you just couldn't wait to kind of have, you know, all I want is a driveway that isn't just completely a dust storm, right? And those are simple dream, but hey, that's, that's one worth dreaming for. Um, maybe you grew up and maybe you thought, hey, I don't ever want to have to go down another one of those in my life if I don't have to. And maybe, metaphorically, as a Christian, you thought, Shouldn't, as a Christian, I, don't ha- I not have to go down these dirty, bumpy roads? Maybe these are the kind of roads that you were hoping that as a Jesus follower, Jesus would help you evade or escape. We may think we're too good for these roads, too saved for these roads. I mean, as a child of God, shouldn't I be able to avoid these sorts of pathways? But the reality is, There are plenty of rocky and messy roads in a Christian's life, aren't there? Now that's why we're praying for an enduring spirit today. Because we're going to need one if we're going to make it down these rocky and messy roads. Now of course the beauty of this parable is Jesus interprets it for us. So down in verse 20 and 21, he is in the process of interpreting this parable. And these two verses is how he translates this scenario. So don't take my word for it. Here's what Jesus says. He who received the seed on the stony places or on the gravel road is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy and enthusiasm. Yet, he has no root in himself. He endures only for a while, but when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Jesus paints a pretty kind of grim picture there, right? That there are going to be some roads in life that get a little bumpy and get a little messy. And if we aren't able to get down those roads, our faith may be at risk. Now, the critique over the hearer in this parable, in this scenario, is a lack 
of endurance. Can we all agree on that? That's what verse number 21 says. He, uh, for, he has no root in himself, endures only for a while. But because there's no root, there is no long-term steadfastness, perseverance, or endurance. So Jesus sets up and pitches a scenario that is so real, so believable, I find myself saying, Jesus, are you talking about me? He talks about the cycle that we often go through. So let me set this up for you. We hear the gospel, we hear the good and the promises and the potential and the opportunities of being a Christian. We hear about Jesus, how he makes life better and makes us better at life. We hear about a new nature and a new habit and a new ability and we think, give me more of that. Why wouldn't I want to be a Christian? And we spring up with joy because there's nothing but good feelings and great opportunities. And by all means, there is nothing but good that comes out of following God by how he defines it. But following Jesus is indeed a pathway to making life better and making us better at life. But here is someone who receives the word and is excited about the word. And no fault of it, but often we come to church and church is really all about this. To make us feel good, to encourage us and empower us. We sing and we worship and we're pumped up and we're hyped up. And then I get up here, right? No. Right? Church is about hyping us up and pumping us up. And maybe after a service or after praying or after a conversation, you're emboldened and you feel like, you know, hey, you could take on the enemy yourself right now. Yet this is where there's a breakdown in our faith so frequently. Because notice how Jesus depicts it. Receives the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet there is no root and there is no endurance. And when trouble comes, they fall away. So here's how Jesus tells us, depicts this. There's a disconnect between reaction to the invitation and traction in our following. And traction is not that good on dirt roads, is it? Does that make sense? And this is where I'm stressing the following part of Christianity is so important. So often Christianity gets bottled down and shrunk down into a prayer or a confession or a ceremony. And while it begins with all those things, it does not stay there. It never remains or ends with those things. In our world today, anybody can be a Christian because people have defined Christian in so many different ways. Every branch of Christianity regards initiation in their own way. That's why even at funeral, you'll hear Christianity attached to so many different things that aren't even that biblical. But we often leave out the main and honestly the only part that matters. To be a Christian is to be Christ-like. And to be Christ-like, we must follow Jesus. So there must be traction, right? There must be an ability to follow down the road, any road, which is why Jesus begins his relationships with every one of his disciples with this very on-the-nose, impossible-to-misinterpret, follow-me invitation. People may try to define Christian in a dozen different ways, but following Jesus is a straight and narrow and very specific reality, albeit a very good and a very, the very best reality. But here's the thing. There are a lot of layers to this life, and as we've learned and will learn even more today, we won't experience Jesus' best unless we stay committed to him through the mess. And what's the mess? That's life, right? I mean, look up the mess in the dictionary and you see 2020 beside it, right? But that's not just this year, that's life, okay? The mess, which is for reasons we'll unpack, it's not perfect. Jesus did not come to pave a way out of the mess or above the mess. He walks through the mess. And here's the thing. 
If Jesus walks through the mess and we're following Jesus, what does that mean we are to do? Not evade or escape, but endure. And for us, this mess, mess proves to be a test. A test that challenges our confession and strengthens our possession of faith. You see, again, in this parable, the issue is not enthusiasm. There's plenty of enthusiasm in this believer's heart, but there's no endurance. The hearer is enthusiastic about Jesus, but their faith is so shallow and uninformed, which sadly describes many, if not most, church attendees in today's world. Often it seems like church forgoes offering a faith that can endure in exchange for quick returns. And the ironic thing is that those quick returns of enthusiasm don't produce consistent returns of disciples and faithful believers. Especially when, the, when life that they encounter is not as smooth as they anticipated. So the question we have to wrestle with today and are going to address today is a very important one. Do we have a faith that can endure? Does our faith have roots, or is it unreliable on the rocky roads of this life? That's a question that we must wrestle with today, and we must answer today. Do you, do we have a faith that can endure, or does our faith have roots, or is it unreliable on the rocky, dirty, dusty, difficult roads of this life? Now, I want to spend the appropriate amount of time on this subject because this is where there's a lot of divergence among Christian thought, much less if you consult the world, of course. For a lot of people, including many Jesuses of of his original followers, there's this line of thought that asks these kind of questions. Why can't following Jesus be all enthusiasm? I mean, why can't it just be all about being hyped and pumped up? Why do we need endurance? I mean, why do we have to go down roads that require endurance? Why can't we always be in, in controlled environments that it's all about being enthusiastic. I mean, those are legitimate questions, and I don't fault you if you've asked those questions. We're wanting to answer those today. Jesus would never lead us down rocky roads, would he? Well, aside from this parable that makes an example of someone who lacks the endurance to make it down a rocky road, which should be enough, right? But no, I understand there's tension around this conversation, isn't there? For a long time, Christians have wrestled with this. There's an entire field of study called the Odyssey about this. More recently, there's strings of Christianity that suggest that not only does God not cause bad things to happen to good people, but that good people should have the power over bad and ability to overpower bad. But let me just ask you this. If the rocky gravel road parable is to be taken true and inspiring, the believer on that road did not have the faith that could endure, did they? It's pretty explicit, isn't it? Because they believed faith was only about enthusiasm and the second that endurance was necessary, they bailed out. They quit following. They believed that bad shouldn't happen to good. So they quit believing in God. Which the logic there doesn't seem to be too, you know, ideal, but we can see how they made that connection, right? They believed that the good should have power over the bad, but when they proved, when it proved not to be the case, they doubted God's power completely. So what the scenario tells me is, if we don't understand that there's a purpose for the gravel, there's a reason for the messy, there's something redeemable about the trial, then our faith may be at risk. 
Because the reality is that even if your GPS is telling you that you're never going to have to take a dirty or gravel or a rocky road anytime soon, even if your intentions are to never drive your shiny new car down a dusty, rocky road, the likelihood of encountering a detour is high. Again, 2020 says hello. God doesn't always protect us from them, but often redirects us down them. And let me be clear. Not because he's mad or because he's bad, but because he's spreading redemption through you. And again, maybe this is where we push back, but let me present this another, I think, better way. Christians have never believed in a God who doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. He's, we've never believed that. And I'm talking about Christians from day one. Christians have never believed in a God that doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. You know why, Christians, I know that you agree with this. You know why Christians have never believed this? Because Christianity started around this reality. Christians believe that the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person. Right? Isn't that what our faith is built on? Isn't that why you're here? Because the worst possible something happened to the best possible somebody? Jesus, right? And the message of the New Testament is this. Faith allows, allows us to follow Jesus in a life that may well involve suffering. We know that in Christ, God's presence in suffering always produces some kind of redemption. And that's why he leads us down those roads, because he wants to spread it through us. That's the consistent teaching of the New Testament. It is woefully underpreached. And I believe there may, that many have abandoned their faith because of that. Many have forsook following Jesus for some copy in order to uphold a worldview that is harmful to their faith and ultimately hinders God's ability and his desire to work through us. I would like for you to turn with me. You can, hear, you can just listen to it, but I would like for you to turn with me to 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter 4. There's some scripture that is so underrated, so underplayed. Uh, I would normally put this on the screen, but I want you to look at it with your, eye, your eyes so, I think, so you can turn back to it later on. So 1 Peter 4, Peter writes to the Christians who are in Rome who are going through quite a bit of turmoil. Uh, Christians in Rome, he writes this in 1 Peter 4. I want you to hear verses 12 through 14. Then 16 and 19, you can read the whole passage, but for time, we're just going to read those few. And listen to how Peter talks about suffering in light of being a Christian. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you or something that should not happen to you has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. But, but I thought there was I thought the enthusiasm, you know, was, was without suffering, and, and, and I thought that suffering takes away enthusiasm. And Peter says, no, no, no. Actually, that there is a joy and there is an enthusiasm that you'll never find unless you are willing to follow Jesus down this road with the right attitude. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, He's blasphemed the world, but on your part, He's glorified. 
He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. And again, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Do you hear what Peter's saying? That there is a connection, there is a, there is a, uh, a process. When we suffer, we experience a part of God's glory that otherwise we never would have and never will. But the problem is, we often let our guard down in the midst of a trial because of this breakdown between perception and purpose of suffering. And I get it. It's easy to get crossed up. One minute Jesus is saying, in this world you'll have trouble, and the next minute he's healing somebody. And we think, well, if he could heal them, why can't he heal me? And if he could snap his fingers and get rid of that, why can't he snap his fingers to get rid of this? And if he can walk on water, then why can't I, right? And if he can part water, why can't I? And if he can say, storm, be gone, why can't... And I understand, I understand those are real questions to ask. And it's in those moments that we're tempted to assume that we don't need to learn how to endure. We just need to enthuse our way out of whatever trouble we face. But again, the danger is... If that trouble isn't erased, our faith very well may be. You hear me? That the trouble is, the risk is, that if we go into it with that kind of attitude, and all of a sudden we don't get the miracle that we were hoping for, and that we thought we were owed, what's on the line is more than just the trouble. Our faith is on the line. And I'm not suggesting that you want to bail out. I'm just saying the enemy will use this to size you up and knock you down. Unless we go into the trial looking up, knowing the trial is not from outside of God's will or detached from God's will, but is a part of God's will. It's a valid question, though. Why doesn't? Why don't Jesus' miracles guarantee me one? Why don't we have a guarantee that all things can be taken care of at the snap of fingers? The same way, and here's why, that's, here's the answer. The same way that Jesus' death does not sentence you to a cross. Here's what I mean. Jesus made it clear that the brokenness of this world is a result of sin. Not my sin or your sin, but sin. Sin that entered the world through Adam and spread to every Adam. Every piece of matter. Every part of creation. Jesus demonstrated his power over sin by performing miracles to show that he could do something greater than just momentarily make life better or easier. He could guarantee you eternal life. He could do more than erase a bad day. He could erase sin. But know this. How did Jesus display his power to forgive sin and bring redemption? He surrendered to a cross. Did he have to? Now there's theological reasons why he went to the cross, but he could pronounce forgiveness of sin from many much more comfortable places. He did it often throughout his ministry. But he chose to go to a cross to do it once and for all. Why? Because he went to a place of extreme suffering to be able to speak to everyone as we go through these sorts of situations. Because everyone finds themselves under the weight and brokenness of this world. And the fact that Jesus, God's Son, would go to the cross reminds us, reminds them that we are not alone. Even in our suffering, we are not forsaken. And listen, that's why God doesn't just allow us, but leads us down these rocky roads because the life of a Christian is meant to show that God can redeem anyone and anything and that no one has to be alone. Listen, anyone who promises you that as a Christian you should never suffer or, do, or, or if you do it a reflection of your disobedience or lack of spirit, 
They're either trying to sell you something or they've never read the Bible. If you've lost faith because Jesus didn't remove your trouble, remember that Jesus bore your trouble on his cross. And that by leaning into and living by him, you can experience his grace in the most unlikely of places. Listen how Paul frames this in Romans 5. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. So he says there's this dichotomy, there's this dual reality that we live in. Sin continues to reign through death and rear its ugly head through disease and brokenness. But grace has entered the world and entered hearts of believers so that we might live up and against those in sin and show them there is redemption. Romans 8, Paul writes this, As children of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, we also will be glorified together. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And he goes on to talk about how creation longs for healing and redemption. And creation is looking for signs of healing and redemption. That the creation pangs together, waiting And we who have been adopted know that it's coming. We believe that it's coming. Listen, this isn't to say that we don't fight or push back to try to improve things on this earth, but it is to remind us that when we don't win every battle, and we won't win every battle, when death continues to swallow more and more, we have faith that ultimately God is going to resurrect far more than death has wrecked. He is going to bring a new earth. And those in Christ are going to be raised to a new life, which will far overshadow what death has done. And yes, we pray, and yes, we wait, and yes, we hope for a better sooner than later. But our reigning in this life isn't contingent on winning every battle, but on the battle that Jesus has won, the hope that He brings, and the assurance that, we, that He will offer a true and final solution one day. One day, the world will be as it should be, but until that day, we believe that every day is another step closer. And our endurance in the next step helps tell the story and pave the way towards that final step. So we never give up. We forever look up. If you want a far more wise and clear advice on this subject, I would ask you to read The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. Lewis took a lot of heat in his day for being too passive. Social workers and even Christian teachers criticized him for suggesting that Christians ought to just give in to suffering. That wasn't what he was saying at all, but he was just looking at what Matthew 13 tells us, that realizing that one out of three pathways a Christian takes is going to be rocky and bumpy and dirty and grimy. And unless there are roots that are taken deep before we take those paths, we will not make it out of them alive, much less with faith. Lewis builds his entire thesis around those verses from Romans and 1 Peter and says we will never see or we will see God's glory if we suffer like Christ. But if we don't suffer like Christ or With Him, we will never see God's glory. Like as in with the same heart, with the same resolve. This isn't the the end. This is for a purpose. Lewis says that suffering, when suffering seems the most unavoidable, that's when God proves the most approachable. And isn't it true that often the tension of the trials is the center of God's activity in your life? What have you prayed a lot about lately and this year? 
Isn't it true that the center of God's activity in your life has been this tension of this trial, of this burden, of this challenge? These things drive us to God. And Lewis writes that we can't allow persistent pain to make us bitter, to cause us to shut God out, but rather we must hear God out because God may whisper when it's peaceful, He may speak when it's mundane, but He shouts in our pain. And pain is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When our suffering is most acute, our faith can actually take root. If something as horrible, horrifying as the cross brought salvation, then our present hour is an invitation to trust in God with everything, especially our pain. What we've learned from Peter and Paul and from Jesus today is that we can never make the problem of pain worse by dismissing the problem of hope. Listen, your hope, your trial, your pain, your suffering, they're not in vain. It's not a curse from God. It's not a reflection on your disobedience or lack of faith. It's an opportunity from God to enter this world and even more and demonstrate His resurrection power through your life. We can't bail out. We can't quit. We must endure. Jesus' little brother James, who became a Jesus follower after his death and resurrection, suffered greatly for his newfound faith in Jesus. He would go on to write this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you are met with trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Full effect. The cross taught him that when life seems to be tearing you apart, God may actually be purifying you and preparing you for something better. That better may not come in this life, but if it comes in the next, far better, because that's something that's not temporary. James and Peter and Paul all teach us, often the thing we want God to remove, He chooses to use. The thing we pray for God to remove, God says, nah. -uh. I'm going to use it. And I know at first this may frustrate your enthusiasm, but it's meant to create an enduring spirit within you. That's that like our Savior and with our Savior, we would not give up but look up, trust that one day this dirt and this gravel and this rocky road will turn into gold. And one day this broken and wearied body of flesh will be restored and renewed. One day this fallen world will be raised into the heavens. And while that may not be today and it may not be tomorrow, we hold on. Why? Because rather than waiting on us in heaven's luxury, Jesus came and met us in our misery. That's why we don't give up. That's why we believe it's worth enduring. That's why we turn toward our God rather than turning away. That's why we don't forsake suffering as something that God can't use, but believe it's something that God doesn't intend on using. Because rather than waiting for us in heaven's luxury, Jesus came and met us in our misery. His embrace at our worst promises us His best. So our next step, may it be a limp or a stumble, is one step closer to our heavenly home where tears will be wiped away, sorrows will cease, and all who endured will be safe and secure forever with their Savior. You may have a hard time believing that you can make it another step on some of the roads that life takes you down. But you can ask the Lord today for help and strength. You can ask Him for a faith that can endure. Now, there's nothing I can say, 
and nothing I can do that can give you assurance that your faith has grown or matured to this level. But if you're here today and you're desiring that God would give you this faith, I have something better to offer you. God is willing to meet you in person and give you this faith and its assurance. If you would draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. If you ask, you will receive. If you want to make every season of this life count, you just have to call on Jesus. And nobody, nothing, can take that faith away from you. So like last week, I want to lead you in a confession. Now, this confession is mine. It's not yours, but it can become yours. And even better, you can pray and ask the Lord in your own way for God to give you this enduring spirit. Because troubles may come, but we believe that God can give us a faith that can take us through and out of for a purpose. So I'm going to read these, and I'm going to read them again. You can read them out with me, okay? Lord, I used to think troubles were detours, but now I see that they are much more. You lead us down the most extreme paths to demonstrate your redeeming power. Now, together. Lord, I used to think troubles were detours, but now I see that they are much more. You lead us down the most extreme paths to demonstrate your redeeming power. Next. I love for you to remove it, but I accept that you may choose to use it. I don't love or always understand the pain, but I believe you are working some kingdom gain. I'd love for you to remove it, but I accept that you may choose to use it. I don't love or always understand the pain, but I believe you are working some kingdom gain. Should say, help me endure when I'd rather wonder. May your presence within me be greater than the problems around me. Help me endure when I'd rather wonder. May your presence within me be greater than the problems around me. We're going to have an invitation. Lindsay's going to come and sing and play a very special song for us that reminds us that Jesus is the way in every season of life. And if we turn to him, we will not wonder, but we can find the ability to endure through the most difficult and troublesome paths of this life. And we actually will experience a part of God's glory that otherwise is locked away. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to hear your word today. Lord, thank you for reminding us that in this life there are many troublesome roads There are many difficult paths. But if we follow you and trust in you, we realize these paths are not in vain and they are not against us, but you actually use them for us and bring us through them for a purpose. Father, I pray you would move into this invitation. If there's anybody in this house today, that you would remind them and show them that you can give them an enduring spirit. They don't have to bail out because it gets tough. They can double down because they know you are with them. You bore their worst on your cross to remind them that you are with them always. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.